As we come to the scripture this morning, we are still in 1 Peter. We are, have been marching through 1 Peter for most of the year, and uh, we have arrived in chapter 5. I think we have this week and uh, one more week after this that we will be wrapping up our, our walk through the book. We've hit on 1 Peter 5, and we are in verses 5 and 6. There's a section here on humility, and I thought about just wrapping it into some other stuff and wrapping it up and moving on because we've... I don't know, when I did the seven deadly sins not that long ago, we spent some time on pride and humility. And, but the more I was reading and looking at it and thinking about it, the more I felt convicted that the Lord has put it before us uh, to spend some time thinking about it again this morning. And I do believe that humility is one of the great needs of the hour. It's one of the great needs in our culture, in our leadership. It's one of the great needs, I believe, in the church. It's one of the great needs in our marriages. It's one of the great needs in so many areas. I believe it is just the soil in which... All the other good things and graces grows is our humility toward before the Lord, but also then before one another. And so turn with me then to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, and hear the word of God. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have come this morning in these moments to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, under your word. We would have you speak into our lives. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see because our sin blinds us. And we don't see it and we don't realize it. And we... We need your grace to awaken us to ways in which we are full of ourselves instead of full of your spirit and your grace. Come now, in Jesus' name we ask, amen. Pride tends to be one of those respectable sins. By respectable sins, we mean it's not one of the flagrant ones, you know, where it's easy to see immorality or drunkenness and abortion or racism, things that that are easier to see and on the surface, but rather it is one of those more subtle things. And so it often gets tolerated, sometimes tolerated in ourselves and sometimes tolerated in others, our leaders and that kind of thing. Counselor Josh Squires, it's in your bulletin there under the first point, he says, as a counselor, what are the problems you see the most? And he says, well, I see a lot of things, depression, anxiety, anger, marital conflict, all these things make the cut. But the top answer, my top answer would be pride. That for me is a fascinating commentary. And I think that what it gets at and what it does is a lot of those other things, whether it's depression, anxiety, anger, and marital conflict, underneath those, a deep cause of so many of our problems is pride. And it's a soil in which some of these other things grow. Just like humility then becomes the soil in which so many of God's graces would grow in our lives from patience to kindness to generosity, in the soil of humility. Because pride can destroy our relationships and undermine our marriages. It's pride that divides and splits churches and friendships. And it's power to the power of pride that it blinds us. Pride does not see itself. It's the nature of sin in general, but pride in particular. It's that it has a hard time, we have a hard time seeing the ways that we are full of ourselves and put ourselves forward and and make demands and and those kind of things, and it's hard for us to see. 
Pascal said, it's there in your bulletin, truly it is an evil to be full of faults, but it's a still greater evil to be full of them and to be unwilling or unable to recognize them. And so this morning, I want us to, to take some time to examine our hearts for both the symptoms of pride, but also the symptoms of humility, the signs of humility and that grace, that gracious work of God in our spirits to humble us. So I was reading an article um, it's by the, your first point there, by Fabian Hartford, and he was uh, writing about the seven, seven symptoms of pride. And I added one, so you're going to get eight, because I added one of my own. <clears throat> and I think there are more, but, you know, I didn't want to get carried away. So we'll just run through them, and I would just encourage you to just take a moment and sit back and say, you know what, let God speak to you. And you don't have to have all of these, I'm only proud if I only have six of the eight. You know, or I'm only proud or, you know, there's not a cutoff. So, you know, it's like in there. But where do I see myself in here? Where might God say, you know what? You know, that you just feel that touch. That he's telling you, this is you. You know, number one, he says, is fault finding. Because pride can't see itself. It goes easy on its own faults. It dismisses them, you know, oh, sure, yeah, I have that. Or, oh, yeah, I did that. You know, sorry. You know, it's easy. Pride is easy on itself because it really doesn't see itself very well. But it feels free to pick you apart, to pick others apart, to tear others down, to be critical and to be judgmental because it comes from a place of feeling very satisfied with ourselves. Fault finding a harsh spirit. Pride is impatient with other people. It's contemptuous of other people's sins. Shouldn't have to put up with other people's faults, failings, and foibles. Shouldn't have to deal with other people's weaknesses. And so it can be harsh and it gets irritated. It's not gentle superficial because it's more concerned with the perceptions of other people about me than about the reality of my own heart and so it spends a great deal of time being concerned of how one presents oneself as opposed to one how one really is it's defensive it's unable to bear criticisms if you to hear things and people try to tell you you try to tell you something that you need to hear you know faithful are the wounds of a friend and so someone tries to tell you but our response is to get angry our response is to get to mount a defense or our mount is to turn it around well let me let me tell you about you right and that's something that I I know is easy is to turn around well you are this you know rather than hearing it we turn it around and we go on the attack we or we just plain walk away you know la 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 It's fault-finding, it can be harsh, it can be superficial, it's defensive, and it's presumptuous before God. Presumptuous in the sense that it's, it's unable to take a long, hard look at itself, right? It's presumptuous in the sense that it feels, it, it, it feels good about itself in that regard. And it's hard to look at the self and to really see the truth. Hard to face the truth, so we're constantly running from ourselves, running from the truth about the way we really are in the eyes of other people as they, as they experience us. And so it is difficult to admit fault. There's not a brokenness. There's not a contriteness. There's not a, there's not a, a pattern of repentance. There's a desperate, desperation for attention. Pride is hungry for attention. It needs to be noticed. It craves recognition. It wants to be noticed. It neglects others in that respect, but selectively because it honors those that it deems worthy. And it dismisses those that it does not feel are worthy. There's no time for those who don't measure up. No time for those who, who don't fit the pattern, who aren't what they think that they should be or have failed or sin. Or, 
And then here's mine, <laughs> which is a very biblical one. I'm on safe ground. It's self-righteous. It's self-righteous. It, it has a sense of moral superiority. It doesn't commit certain sins. It doesn't have certain failures, faults, or weaknesses. And so it feels free to look down on others who do. Finding fault, harsh, and critical, and judgmental, superficial, defensive, presumptuous, desperate for attention, neglecting others' sense of its own righteousness. Jesus tells a parable, and it's fascinating for me. It's like every time I hear it, it challenges me. You know, it's that parable about the two guys who go into the temple to pray, and he says one is a Pharisee, a very religious, church-going guy, right? He knows his Bible, and he goes to church every week, and he's a, he's a good guy. So you've got the Pharisee, and then you've got the uh, tax collector, who's a notorious sinner, Right? And they both go to church one day. They both go to pray. And they say, Jesus says, and they prayed. And the, and the Pharisees said, thank you, God, that I'm not like others. And the tax collector, the sinner, said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus wants to know, which one went away justified? See, and for me, it's my, as I come to church or as I gather in small groups or I gather with other Christians and we take our time, do we gather as those who come together and a lot of what we have to say or a lot of what we're, we our feel is, thank you, God, that we're not like others out there, right? Thank you, God, that we're not like them, right? We're the washed, you know, we're the, as opposed to those who gather. Say, God, have mercy on me again today. God, have mercy on me again this hour. God, have mercy on me again in this minute. Because apart from your grace, I am desperately lost. Squires, that counselor said, pride is a prison. Because it perpetuates anger and it perpetuates hurt. Pride holds on to it because it feels justified in holding on to it. Because it doesn't have things that it needs to be humbled to the ground for so it can hold that hurt and that anger and that bitterness against other people. Because somehow it stands above. And so it's a prison. We can't get out of those things. It says, and it keeps at bay the restorative effects of conviction, of humility, of reconciliation. See, pride is a prison and humility is the way forward into peace and health because there is forgiveness and graciousness and the bearing with one another there is all the other graces that we need to to escape our sin and brokenness in ourselves in our relationships you know we just touched on this one as we press then into what the text as it says here um Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders, and then clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And we touched on that first one. Likewise, you are younger, be subject to your elders. We did that somewhat last week. We talked about elders and about leadership and about authority and the structures that God has has ordained and given to us for the life of the church. And so we said that that leadership means something, and we're called, it says in in this, after talking about these things, it said, you who are younger, um, submit to your elders. And that takes humility, and I think that's why he launches into a thing on humility, but then he goes much further than this. But certainly he says, and I think there's one in terms of, of, of the leadership he's been talking about, 
as elders, and he uses metaphorically you who are younger, you who are under the leadership, submit, exercise humility. It takes humility on the part of those who lead and humility on the part of those who follow. But I think it also, the word actually means the literally younger. And so it actually says to the younger people, And I think it also speaks to them. I don't know about you. If you're in here today and you're somewhere between 10 and 20, 10 and 25, one of your temptations is going to be to not submit to your elders. One of your temptations is going to be to resist your teachers or to resist your parents and to resist your youth leader or resist whoever it is all the way up into our 20s. For whatever reason, there's a window in there that we chafe under authority. But this is a word from God to you. You who are younger, submit to your parents and to your teachers, to your elders. They have your best interest in heart. They're wiser than you think they are. And then the word to all of us, to obey our leaders and submit to them. But he says to do this, as he, as he, as he says this, he says, he turns it to everybody. He says, but clothe yourselves, all of you. Like, I don't want to excuse it. And he's writing this, remember, to churches that are spread across all of Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, like all of you, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. Put it on like a, like a garment toward one another. Like here's the dress code for the church. Right? All you Christians, this is, you know, universal. Here's the dress code for, for the church, not just when you meet on Sunday. This is the church gathered and the church scattered. This is the church in your home. This is your church at work. This is the church when you're dealing with the waitress. This is the church when you're dealing with the guy mowing your yard. This is, your, this is the dress code for the people of God, right? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Not with the attitude that says, thank you, God, I'm not like other people. With that attitude that says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? It applies humility, the need for humility beyond the whole exercise of leadership in young people to a universal Christian attitude. All of us, the proper attire for a follower of Jesus is hum- humbleness because our Savior is humble. And so it becomes the atmosphere. It ought to be the atmosphere in a church. There's a group of people who are dressed alike in humility and it, and it shapes the atmosphere of the way we do church, of the way we do what we do. As we love one another, but also our marriages, our work situations, our families. In Colossians 3, it's there under your third point in the bulletin, he says, therefore, put on, that is, clothe yourselves, Paul is writing, and he says, as God's chosen ones, as his elect, holy and beloved of God, Right? Because you're his elect, you're his people, you're his chosen ones, you're holy, you're beloved, you're his people. He says, so clothe yourselves in a certain way, this way with compassion. Compassionate heart. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Right? There's this great image of clothing. The word literally means to tie something on. You know, whether it's like an apron or something else, it means to tie something on, to don it, and to put it on, but maybe it ties like a robe. But I think Peter, you can imagine Peter actually in this image, is he, is he speaking to you? Is everybody close yourselves with humility like this. Can you not imagine that Peter is remembering the upper room? Can you not imagine that, G, that Peter is remembering Jesus stripping down and wrapping a clout, towel and tying the towel on himself and getting on his knees and washing Peter's feet? Peter wrestled with that. The rest of them seemed to be like, yeah, wash my feet. Peter wrestled with it. 
But there's an image there that Peter is reminding them of. It is something etched in his soul that he saw in his Savior, in his Lord, in his Master, who would tie humility on himself literally and take the basin and get down and wash the feet of the disciples. And the disciples are not greater than the Master. We are not. It is, it is an attitude that we put on as part of the new man in Christ because it's like Christ. And so as we put on the new man, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, and the first and foremost soil of that is humility. Matthew 9, 11, 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I'm gentle and I'm humble or lowly in heart. Right? Jesus says, Come to me. You'll find rest for your souls, but come to me and learn from me because here's something you need to learn. It is not natural to you in your natural self, part of the fall, at the very core of the fall. What is wrong with human beings is the twisting of the soul of the heart away from God-centered humility and obedience and to to twist it away to a fullness of self and self-will and self-desire and selfishness, and self-reliance. And Jesus has come to me because I'm going to teach you something that was the core of the purpose of when God made us in his own image. Learn from me, and I will teach you humility. I will teach you gentleness. It reminds me, I, I just threw this in there because it's, it, it's one of the things that I, I always have liked that story where Jesus comes and there's a, a demon who identifies himself as legion because he is many <clears throat> or they are many. And Jesus casts them out and they end up going into the pigs and running off the cliff. And there's this, there's this thing, but they're this guy who was possessed of all the wrong things. At the end of the story, it says they come and they find the man, everybody who comes, they find the man sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And sometimes I think that's exactly what we need, that we, we will not be, we will be unclothed and out of our minds until we are clothed with humility. And it shapes our attitude and our mind right that we become clothed when we let go of ourselves and learn from Jesus to be clothed, delivered, and in our right minds. He gives two strong incentives, doesn't he? I mean, if, if it is an incentive yet, I haven't talked you into it as, as the image of the Savior and our God himself. Um, then he gives, two, he gives two incentives. God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. Right? It resounds like a thunderclap. God opposes the proud. He is it odds with pride pride is the first and primordial sin and the root of every other sin it's the root of all rebellion against God and so God opposes pride it is anti-God it is at odds with the almighty because there is only one God only one who deserves glory and honor only one who is good only one who deserves that attention that fame that worth And so he opposes. It says the Almighty will oppose you. And the word there is he will resist. And it's it's used of ranging an army. Like if you come out to fight, he will range his army against you. He will 
He will resist you. He will fight against you in your pride. Matthew 23, 12, it's there in your bulletin under the fourth point. It says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And whoever exalts himself, glorifies himself, puts himself forward, puts forth his interests, puts forth his fame, puts forth his desires, puts forth his will, puts forth he who exalts himself in that way, he says, God will, and there's a promise in there, God will humble you. But whoever humbles himself, whoever under the mighty hand of God is willing to be brought low at the foot of the cross. It says, in due time, the Almighty God will not stand against you, but the Almighty hand of God himself will exalt you and lift you up. See, the temptation for most of us is to feel morally superior to the world and to each other. We need to never forget that God gives grace to the humble that he will meet us there and that he gives us what us need. Some of us are afraid to let go of our pride. We're afraid to let go of looking out for number one because if I don't look out for me, who will? God says, I will. Trust yourself into my hand. Let go. Quit, quit fighting so hard for you. And let me fight for you. I truly believe it is when we abandon ourselves to him that he is everything we need him to be. The Almighty gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 57, 15, it's there in your bulletin. It it tells us that God lives in two places. He lives in two places. He lives in the highest heaven and he lives in the hearts of the humble, right? He says, thus says the high and lifted one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, who lives in the highest of heavens. He says, I dwell in this high and holy place, but I live one, one other place. I will live with the one who is contrite, repentant, broken, and humble, who is lowly in spirit. And to this one, will come revival. To this one, I will revive his heart. I will revive his spirit. I will fill him. Rather than being full of yourself, you will find yourself full of his spirit, full of the God who saves us. Humility is experienced in relation to God as we talk about under God's mighty hand, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And that's because I believe, really, humility, we will not find it out there. If you look at our leaders, you look at the people who are campaigning for Uh, you know, and at the top of the list of the people campaigning right now, humility is not on the list of qualities that I would say we are experiencing. Um, And and in terms of what we want to follow and and imitate, you know, we look around hard and really humility isn't going to be, we look around here and a lot of times I feel good about myself. I look at some of you guys and I'll be like, ah, I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) Some of you guys look at me and be like, ah, I'm doing pretty good. You look at the guy down the pew and that's the thing. See, pride is the... Pride is the symptom, it's the affliction, it's the sickness of those who compare ourselves with other people. Because we can fare pretty well. Some of us do better than others. Some of us, you know, we're at all. So we, when we compare, see, comparing with other people puffs us up. 
puts us in a place where we don't want to get our hands dirty. We compare ourselves with our spouses or the people that we work with or, we, or the people in our pew or the, the other people in our house or other people in our family. Or we, I don't know, who do you like to compare yourself to that makes you feel pretty good about you? The scripture never, ever, if anything, the scripture always again and again says, don't, don't look at everybody else. Fix your eyes on Jesus. See, when you compare yourself with Jesus, you don't fare quite as good. And he says that's where he wants us, right? That's right where he wants us, not faring so good. Because it does a number of things. One, it humbles us. Two, it makes us needy. It makes us desperate. I want to be like Christ, and I'm not. And so I'm not looking at you to see if I'm better than you. I'm looking at Christ to see, see, see the bar, to see the goal, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and, and pursue him and to follow him. And, and when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, it does humble us, but it also empowers us. He gives grace to the humble. It's where grace flows in, and we grow, and we change, and we are made into the image of man and, and humanity as we were meant to be. <laughs> Let me give you some symptoms of humility and wrap up with a couple of thoughts. Give some symptoms of pride. Let's talk about some of the symptoms of humility, some of the marks of humility that we begin to see. And I'll put it, and there are eight to match, right? And these I made up. Um, but I made them up from the Bible. So go with me on this one. Brokenness, right? What did God just say? I live in a high and holy place and with him who is broken and contrite to revive them. That's where I live. And so one of the signs of humility and the place of grace is a brokenness, an honesty about our sin, a daily repentance, a daily renouncing of our sin, a daily recognizing that I am the one desperately in need of grace. And I don't stand above any of you. Every day you and I wake up in the morning and find ourselves at the same place at the foot of the cross in desperate need of the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all sin. And to lift us on our feet that we might walk worthy of him. And apart from that grace, there's not one of us that stands a hair above the other before God. Brokenness shows itself in a gentleness and a patience. Prayerfulness. I don't believe prayerfulness is a sign of humility because if humility forsakes all self-sufficiency and finds it, it, it seeks and it knocks and it asks, It recognizes that apart from him, I can do nothing. And so it's prayerful because if I can do nothing, I need the one who can do all things to fill me with his spirit and empower me to live the life that he's calling me to live, including the humility that I need. But it's prayerful because it sees itself and is broken and needy and desperate and prayerful, resting in the righteousness of Christ alone. It is submissive. Isn't that what Peter has been saying for the last two or three chapters as he calls us to submit to first the government and to masters and to uh, wives to their husbands and now the young to the older and the church to its leadership and then he goes into this, all of you clothe yourselves with humility or we're not going to do any of it. Humility is submissive to each other, to 
to our spouses, ultimately to God in Christ. So it's broken, it's prayerful, it's submissive, it's obedient. Obedient to the word and to the will of God. It is surrendered to the providential will, to his word and to his ways, but also to his providential will and the things that happen in our lives. It is forgiving because it, it knows how much it doesn't deserve forgiveness. It knows how much it has itself been forgiven. And so it is quick to forgive, quick to be gracious, quick to give it away, you know, quick to, to bear with others, quick to cancel the debt. It's gracious. And I was thinking of a word for this, and just, you know, graciousness. There's a certain quality about some people. When they're gentle with you, they're they're patient with you, they are, they go easy on people, like it's okay, don't worry about it. They, you know, it can slide, they bear with, they understand, they'll let you off the hook. There's just a graciousness, a selflessness that considers others better than themselves. Looks out for their interests. Like Jesus with the towel on his waist, on his knees, serving others, not demanding from them. I didn't come to be served. Came to give it away. That's humility in our God and Savior, Jesus. And generosity, who knows how great the debt was that was paid, knows how much it is received and is ready to give it away. Like Jesus, better to give than to receive because that is my Savior. Who's like this, right? Who's, who is, who's like this guy? How shall I become such a man? How will you become such a woman? How does it happen? This divine attitude. And the answer is, my friends, you know the answer. It's every Sunday school answer. What is it? You know, what's the answer? Everybody knows the answer, right? It's Jesus, right? It is, it is the daily experience of Christ in our lives. Right? He is the humble one. He said, if you want to learn humility, where did he tell you to go? Come to me, you who are weary, and I will teach you humility and gentleness. Everything that we need is given to us in Christ. And he says to come to him and to learn of him. We need to have the mind, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He humbled himself and he served and he gave himself away. Come to this Jesus who knows it, who does it, who leads the way. This quote in your bulletin, I read it the last time. I love it by Stott and you're under your last point. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I'm here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing. It is your curse that I am suffering. It is your debt that I am paying. It is your death that I am dying. And there's nothing in history or in the universe that cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have an inflated view of ourselves. All of us do. It is part of our fall, especially in self-righteousness, right? Until we have visited a place called Calvary, and it only there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to true size, humbled by our sin. This is the cost that had to be paid to rescue me from myself and the doom that my heart places on me. So we're humbled by our sin, by the cost that was paid, but we're also humbled by the grace of the one who hangs there. Humbled by the one who was willing to wrap the towel around his waist and first to wash feet and then climb on the cross. Make no mistake, he climbed there. 
He said, you have no power over me. He gave himself. But more than that, my friends, and here's the bottom line is this. It not only shows us the cost of our sin and the grace of our Savior, but more than this, the Savior that was there is risen. We've been talking about this. Peter has been, he sits at the right hand of the Almighty on high. It is that Jesus that we're to fix our eyes on and to run this race. It is this risen Christ who is full of power, who pours out his spirit on his people. It is this risen life that we need to, he says, come to me, drink of me, and streams of water will come up. Feast on me. And so this is what you and I need. It's a little more drinking and feasting on Christ, learning from him, learning from him, not the culture, not the leaders out there, not even they, not the guy down the pew, but come to Jesus. Come to Jesus by faith and drink of his transforming life and drink of his Holy Spirit and drink of his transforming power and let him humble you and speak to you in his word and in his ways. Pray with me. Jesus, we come now confessing that we are full of ourselves. I am more full of myself than I am full of you. And I hate it. I despise it. I despise myself in dust and ashes. And Father, we would pray, empty us of ourselves that we might be full of your spirit, that we might be full of your life, that we might bear the fruit of the spirit in graciousness and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, that we would bear the fruit of humility toward one another. We know that apart from you, we can't do it. Draw us near. Draw us near that we might drink deeply from the fountain of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.